When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Trull, your host for today, and I am in conversation with Amber Trotter about her book Psychoanalysis as a Subversive Phenomenon, Social Change, Virtue, Ethics and Analytic Theory, which was published by Lexington in 2019. Amber completed a bachelor's degree in sociology at Middlebury College, where her senior thesis focused on social movement theory and climate activism. She received her doctorate from the California Institute of Integral Studies, and she completed her clinical internship at Access Institute for Psychological Services, where she currently teaches. Amber is also a founding editor at Damage Magazine. For those of you who don't know the magazine, uh, make sure to check it out. It's it's really fantastic. And uh, she thinks and writes about psychoanalysis, ethics, politics, digital technology, and processes of social change. She's in private practice in San Francisco. Welcome to the program, Amber. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. Great. So, Amber, I, I guess... The first thing that came to my mind when I started to read the book is that, um, you know, so many parts of psychoanalysis and I guess especially psychoanalytic um, clinical uh, theory has focused on sort of um, downplaying the subversive potential of psychoanalysis over the last decades, right? There have been attempts to make it a psychotherapy just like any other to sort of I guess to an extent, pull its teeth, but you sort of you take a very different approach to the subject, and you, you I guess you you could say you pretty much champion this very subversive and radical potential for individual, but also for societal um, change. That that is a big part, I guess, of psychoanalysis. So what what made you approach? Uh, our field, or I guess our, our clinical field, but also our theoretical field from that angle? It's a good question. It's a nice way of starting. You know, I've always been interested in radical social change from the time I can remember, all through adolescence and into college. I was introduced to Freud in college. We read Civilization and Its Discontents, and the book made a big impact on me. So I suppose I came to psychoanalysis from a more theoretical or sociological perspective and was interested in its radical potential 
long before I thought about studying to become a therapist. I read a lot of Frankfurt School stuff. And as I studied social change and sociology major in college, I found myself thinking about the way that subjective experience in all of its uh, complex, gritty multiplicity is, is too often under-theorized or neglected and Freud's sort of elucidation of the way we internalize culture and society and um, then, then reify the norms we've internalized was something that, that really interested me. Um, so that drew me to psychoanalysis in a kind of intellectual way long before I started studying psychology and then found, you know, psychology as a profession relatively, you know, not radical and psychoanalysis included. And, and so the, the dissertation from which this book arose sort of started from this place of trying to get clearer about what I actually think is radical, what interests me, what compels me, and many other people, what kind of turns me on as this radical potential. And then why does not that potential translate into action kind of more at the time? What are the barriers to that subversiveness having more material impact? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because I think um, uh, the, the very interesting perspective that you also offer in the book is, um, I guess, to an extent that we haven't properly theorized that subversive potential of psychoanalysis. And that's why... Um, why patients or prospective patients, patients who are interested in that sort of change, I guess, either for themselves or culturally or politically, sort of don't have psychoanalysis on the radar anymore to a, to a large extent. So what, what happened? Like how, because I mean, we could argue that there were also times when, when that was different, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how deep dive to, to do into history, but certainly in the second half of the last century, psychoanalysis mm, at first went from perhaps being something more radical or subversive or edgy with, with more teeth in, in the meat of thinking about society and culture and the way that it can be repressive or oppressive, moved in the second half of the, the last century, at least in, in the United States, To being something more hegemonic, you know, something for the the worried wealth, the, the affluent and elite, and mm, to become to, to be an analyst, you had to be, of course, a, a medical doctor, and mm, one could say it lost a bit of its subversive edge, and then, of course, things opened up, and psychoanalysis stopped actually being hegemonic and has become increasingly marginalized. One could say hyper-marginalized today. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Prospective patients don't often have much of any idea about psychoanalysis other than it's this kind of antiquated old version of psychology and we've moved on to the, the bigger, better thing of behavioral medicine. And if they do think about psychoanalysis, I don't think that it's thought of as something really radical, right? Which is unfortunate because I think it's such a wonderful tool for thinking about ourselves in ways that are unsettling, destabilizing, disruptive, radical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it's interesting because you just brought up the hyper marginalization, right? And in the book, you, I guess you sort of make an attempt, we could say, to offer ways how our field could move from hyper marginalization to optimal marginality, right? To engaging cultural and political issues still in sort of a marginal position, but engaging certain issues, um, I guess, I guess closer to what, what moves, what motivates people, right? What, what, what are people um, thinking about anyways? And one, one road you offer, I guess one road that's sort of central to your, your thesis is the way of ethics of virtue ethics to be precise and to be honest that seems counterintuitive in the beginning thinking together psychoanalysis and well psychoanalysis as an ethical project but it unfolds very nicely in 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 your book but could you i don't know maybe maybe give give the listening audience sort of a bit of of an um an overview of of why why you think that well first of all i guess psychoanalysis could be an ethical project and how how looking at it from that perspective might actually give us an inroad away from hyper marginalization to sort of optimal marginality gosh there's a lot in that question i'll respond i hope sort of slowly and maybe draw out a few different things in in what you said I suppose mm, I start the book wondering, well, what is subversive? What actually mm, helps to really change in radical ways, prevailing status quos at, at their roots, right? What allows for fundamental social change or disrupting norms, hegemonies, right? This kind of thing. I, I think about that abstractly a bit. And then I think about how psychoanalysis as a both method of working with people, right? An embodied discipline, but also a kind of philosophy or tradition of, of inquiry into the human condition aligns and doesn't align with, with that previous kind of thinking in, in the book. Um, so this question of what would a subversive analytic social psychology really look like? And I, it, it's of course whimsical because we're really existing psychoanalysis today is pretty far from that, but it's still, um, a worthwhile project. I think one, one that I had a lot of fun engaging with. Mm, look, social change is very complex. It's overdetermined. And in some sense, you can only make a comment on what has been definitively subversive post hoc. You can only examine it after the fact. But in order to really change society and culture in fundamental ways, I think that you need to engage basic ethical questions in this kind of Platonic Aristotelian tradition of ethics, which is just like, what is a life well lived? What is human flourishing? What is human suffering? How do we relieve suffering? What is a good society? How do we live life well? And I think psychoanalysis 
gets right in there with, with those questions, right? And I think part of psychoanalysis functioning subversively is, is, is getting back to those questions and articulating a clear, positive, progressive, ethical vision. And I, I make a version of this in the book. I kind of make an attempt and articulate ethical principles like the importance of attending to subjective experience, regard for the unknown and unknowable, care, mutuality, paradox, creativity, these kinds of things, right? Um, So just situating psychoanalysis as an ethical discipline. In some sense, you're right, psychoanalysis and ethics can seem quite opposed. Freud is famously derisive about religion and morality and certainly virtue pursued through kind of prohibition or trying to repress the bad, but I think um, in the you know, Platonic Aristotelian tradition of just a discipline of character that helps us think about how we want to be in the, move, in the world and kind of move towards that, not in an omnipotent controlling kind of a way, right? But through conversation and experience, Aristotle recommends friendship, psychoanalysis aligns with, with some of Aristotle's idea through this relationship between the the analyst and the patient. So I guess that's one thing. I think that psychoanalysis's ethical vision should be informed by clinical work. It's something unique that psychoanalysis has to offer is that participation and witnessing of the, the gritty, mundane experience that patients are bringing, right? It would be a very nuanced, complex kind of vision. Uh, I think that a subversive analytic social psychology would not be reductionistic in, in, in the sense of kind of reducing psychology to structural impingements and, you know, uh, material circumstances that we're reacting to, but neither would it be sort of reduce society to psychology, theorize that, oh, we voted for this person because of the authoritarian personality complex, for example, um, it would really be bringing ethics to the consulting room and to clinical work, which we could talk more about this. I think it pushes against, you know, ideas of neutrality in interesting ways, as important of a concept as I think neutrality is. But but we would be thinking as therapists about how to cultivate a subjectivity sort of capable of, of resistance, right? So that's some of the core thinking. And then there's this idea that you mentioned of optimal marginality. I think in order to function subversively, any 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 given person or intellectual paradigm, political movement, has to find a position of optimal marginality. If you're too ensconced in the status quo, you're not going to have the perspective or will to be truly subversive. But if you're too hyper-marginalized, you, you don't have a seat at the table. You're not going to change hearts and minds. Right? And I think that the contemporary left can kind of fetishize transgressiveness or the, the, the really, truly radical kind of concepts. But I think to actually function subversively, effectively, you have to find some kind of balance between um, dissonance and resonance, right? You have to have a conversation, a dialogue where you can, we we know this as therapists, right? I mean, you and I probably can think of many examples in our own work where we're trying to situate ourselves in a way 
that is optimally marginal, kind of being empathic and aligned and really getting things from the inside and what does that feel like to the person, but also keeping a, a, a different perspective. Well, let me play the devil's advocate and how can we move this in a different direction? Or what if uh, we thought about this from a very different way? So I think clinically we understand the concept of optimal marginality. I think in the contemporary kind of sociopolitical moment, psychoanalysis as a discipline is quite hyper-marginalized. So what would it look like to become more optimally marginalized, to have a seat at the table? I don't know. I think it feels pretty far away. So I have a lot of humility on this subject. But I think that um, getting outside of the analytic institutes, outside of the consulting room, participating in discourse and political struggle, cross-fertilization with other disciplines, you know, really being in, in, in more conversations, learning from other like-minded traditions, finding ways of articulating what it is that psychoanalysis has to offer that um, resonate, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was a very long answer, but... That's great. That's great. uh, uh, No, absolutely. And I think just one aspect I'd like to draw out a little bit more is the, you know, the, the closeness of, of, I guess, of the analyst or or, of the therapist, but also of psychoanalysis as a discipline to the, the gritty and mundane, as you called it. I think that is really something very important that analysis brings to the table, right? This is not a top-down venture of very abstractly talking about um, virtues or um, ethics or what, you know, sort of the hopes hopes and dreams and desires of people. But we we actually follow that very closely in the consulting room, right? We're, we're, we're with that. We, that's what we work with. So I think that, you know, the concept of... Um, of actual like like sustainable change is is born in that that sort of environment right because like we know how long it takes to to uh, sort of see that change come about right because you have to work with with the the, the resistances and the very you know the yeah like the the nitty-gritty right you have you have to work with that and and then hopefully something some a process develops out of that and i think that's a a very very good model um to work within the consulting room but i guess possibly also uh in broader culture right but at that point it feels like at this political moment we come we come up against all sorts of resistances um that we know from the consulting room but i think that have sort of exploded in the public sphere as well right consider splitting for example right there's good and bad and the two of them are not allowed to meet right we're so well used to that in in the culture and in the political discourse now um that I don't know. Those are some of the strongest, well, not the strongest, but some of the really hardcore um, resistances in the consulting room. And I'm, I just wonder, 
um, how how we can carve out space in in the culture in the political sphere to I don't know work with these like deeply entrenched resistances because they see like it seems to be so difficult to talk about I guess especially at this point about issues of of identity for example right there's so much victimization going on and so much um or so much um discourse around bad people harming victimized people and there always almost seems to be like no way to go beyond that in some instances it does all feel very paranoid schizoid doesn't it (laughs) yeah 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 i think that part of what psychoanalysis has to offer that is so unique is that experience in the consulting room and mm, look we understand what it's like to try to help people change and it's hard. It's hard work. There's this funny paradox that I feel very close to in my work as a therapist. That, mm, look, it's hard for people to change. People don't change. In some ways, I have to do my work with no expectation that there will be any change. And yet, radical change is always possible. It's right there. It's a step away. And I couldn't do the work that I do if I didn't believe people could really change. I felt that as a therapist, as a patient. And, you know, in addition to the, the theory, the theoretical psychoanalysis benefiting from that kind of gritty day in and day out work where the rubber hits the road, we also benefit as a, as a theoretical discipline from the empathy required for good clinical work. You have to empathize. You have to maintain that empathic alliance. You can't push people if you don't maintain that. And I think that that is something that um, is on my mind so often when we come up against the, the present you know, political landscape and the splitting and vitriol that one encounters there. Um, look, I guess one thing I would say is that I can romanticize psychoanalysis, right? It's the the thing that I found that has made so much sense to me and been impactful. And I kind of own in the book, I can idealize psychoanalysis a bit and perhaps make more of its radical potential than, than that radical potential warrants. But I do wonder what lessons we can draw from clinical practice to the broader sociopolitical context What provisions do we need to think critically, to challenge our basic assumptions, to kind of fall apart and consider other possibilities, right? And hmm, there's a lot to contemplate there. Empathic, supportive relationships, someone kind of being there while you fall apart, just time and space. Sometimes I think the most radical things I offer patients these days is just just 50 minutes where their phone is turned off, no distractions, and they're actually forced to look at themselves. I, I do a lot of couples work, and it's interesting. I I'll often kind of start in a light way, like, well, how, you know, how are, how are you two doing? Just how, how are, you know, A and B, 
And they'll look at each other and kind of ask out loud, how are we doing? I don't think we've asked that question since we saw you last. Right? So just that time and space. Um, for a kind of process of subjective exploration, of wondering about our lives and how we are doing becomes a very radical act. Um, I do trace in the book three different things that I think are particularly mm, radical about psychoanalytic work that maybe have broader application. One is this kind of I call it the deconstructive paradigm, where we really analyze ourselves, right? Psychoanalysis, we think about where did that thought come from? Where did that want come from? Why? What's the developmental history? What's at stake here for me? What's the core fear? Mm, that kind of process, which I think if we take subjectivity to be radically social, socially conditioned, as we more or less do these days, it's an inherently sort of political act, right? Um, the second paradigm I sketch is this antinomian paradigm, trying to get us in touch with a freedom that exists sort of beyond ourselves, beyond the social order. This is kind of the attention to unconscious processes, to wild, libidinal, bodily urges and the kinds of freedoms that... that um, exist in those uh, realms. And then I, I sketch this complexity paradigm where I think a core part of what is radical about psychoanalysis is precisely this kind of indeterminate, overdetermined, things are always more complex than they seem, the symptom is meaningful, the, the Freudian slip of tongue is meaningful, kind of questioning everything complexifying everything, right? I think that is radical. Um, I think I already said this, but the privacy of, of the consulting room feels radical. And in our hyper-surveilled contemporary society, I think that becomes very important. I, I don't think people are particularly willing to take risks and think about themselves in really vulnerable, humble ways if they're, you know, being watched. So I think that the consulting room exists outside of the contemporary panopticon. And, you know, again, I don't know what the translated process looks like, but I do think we need spaces and, and places to think in analytic terms more collectively, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks for bringing up the three paradigms because I think, well, what, what all three of them I guess to an extent have in common is that they're also born obviously in, in the consulting room, right? And in the clinical situation and have been, have been established within a certain frame, I'd say, right? I mean, there has to be a solid frame, a solid, I don't know, frequency of sessions. I guess we could talk about that in order to even allow for complexity to emerge for this radical deconstructive or antinomian work to, I guess, function properly without the person going, going to 
to pieces unraveling without being held, right? I mean, that's you sort of you have to have you have to have to have the deconstruction, but you also have to have the solid frame to do it in. And in thinking about that, I I was wondering that if like if we as psychoanalysts or as, as therapists making use of psychoanalytic ideas want to bring to fruition this subversive or radical potential of psychoanalysis, what sort of a frame do we need, right? Because like, that's, that seems to be the question. How does it extend out of the consulting room through us as, as clinicians? And then I guess outwards again, right? What, what sort of frame do we need? What sort of frame uh, does that need to be contained in? So I, I, I was just thinking about that and also about the idea of solidarity uh, among analysts that you bring up as, as sort of a prerequisite for, um, for moving, I guess, analysis or for moving it along in a marginalized position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll talk about the frame and then maybe talk about solidarity. I think that um, over the last, you know, I don't know how long, but let's say 20 years, as clinicians, as analytic clinicians have been more interested in re-engaging society and um, extending out beyond the kind of old school elitist analytic institutes and... um, Etc. Right, psychoanalysis has been kind of rightly critiqued as elitist and you know concentrating only on a particular kind of patient. And part of that, of course, is this you know private analyst's office with you know leather furniture and dark walls, and you come four times a week and lay on the couch. And oh, that's not you know people can't afford that or that's kind of out of touch or something and so what what is the frame that is necessary has been a very open question something i will say that has been inspiring to me is the way that the the current psychedelic therapy movement has been very clear about frame what is the set and setting what is the frame required to do this kind of work it's taken very seriously. This is massive. This could potentially change things for you in such a positive way, psychedelic medicine. But it's also something to really take seriously. It could be scary. You can come unraveled. And so we're going to take the frame question very seriously. And look, I don't particularly want to say, oh, I think it has to be once a week, or it has to be twice a week, or it has to be in person through this, you know, trying to relate through a screen. I don't want to be too prescriptive about it, but I think it's a really important question. Not to pretend that you can do psychoanalysis, you know, in a half hour session twice a month, let's just say. Um it's, it's a really good and meaningful and I think timely question. 
It's really interesting if I may jump in real quick because I was just thinking about um, a corresponding, I guess, development or change that I sort of uh, perceive within the left, uh, the, the the left in the West, I guess, um, that has been so focused on, as you were saying before, on, on you know, trans- transgressivity and being countercultural um, for for a very long time and in recent years I guess also with with the rise of sort of like a I guess a populist approach to to left-wing politics um, you see material questions sort of reappearing that have been I guess m- marginal which seems odd seems odd to even say that that material questions have been marginal to left-wing thinking but in in some i guess in some contexts of the left that that seems to be the case and similarly i i think in psychoanalysis this development of sort of like saying well you can do analysis in whatever kind of setting it's not bound to this like very elitist you know four or five times a week and in, in in sort of office kind of thing um, to to actually now thinking about well but but what are the minimum what, what is the minimal um, uh, frame needed to to sort of you know um, make the most of 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 yeah I guess individual disturbing complexity right um, it's very interesting how there's there seem to be parallel processes going on mm-hmm. i appreciate the the laughter as you said that the contemporary left seems to have lost sight of material politics you know material circumstances one isn't sure whether to to laugh or cry but there's some truth there and it's um you know i, I guess if i tr- try to think about what i think you're you're sort of getting at what are the basic conditions under which radical leftist politics might flourish? What is the frame that we might need? Right? And mm, basic needs being met might be one of those things. Um, Like before we get to transgression, perhaps we need to think more about bread and water, so to speak. What kinds of conditions allow radical collective political action to to flourish? And mm, I went to college in Vermont and mm, it was a wonderful experience at a lovely undergraduate experience a very small and relatively homogenous state. And I remember having this thought coming from California, I'm a California native, gosh, democracy works better in Vermont in, in part because it's, it's just small and engaged in a sort of different way where people go to town hall meetings. There's a, there's a participation in collective politics. It was quite striking for me coming from California the town hall meetings, the potlucks, the community events, just people 
feeling connected and a, a sense of solidarity, I suppose, which maybe can circle back to this other question you raised. But, but, but anyway, that's a sort of just, just anecdote from my own life. But, but what are the conditions under which radical leftist politics might actually take hold? What's, what's the frame? I think it's a great question. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, let's, let's, let's at least say we need a frame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in which to kind of think. Well, and, and and to an extent, that that seems to be the most provocative thing about about analysis these days, right? To even even raise the point that you need some sort of dependability, or while well, you need to depend on another, and I think that's also a point you make in the book. You you make it really well uh, when you sort of. Um, um, put next to each other virtues of American culture, hegemonic American culture, and and psychoanalytic virtues, right? And what really jumped out at me is is this idea of um, of freedom, where I think psychoanalysis is 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 already optimally <laughs> marginal. Uh, towards like Western, I guess, mostly American discourse around freedom that's considered something that's um, completely autonomous. You know, you can make decisions uh, out of, you know, your own will and it's a freedom from uh, persecution and harassment. But, But analysis, I guess, complicates that picture a lot because, you know, freedom, well, Obviously, we don't really know what we want in in analytic terms because our desire is unconscious. But also, you need to have an other there to sort of come to terms and even develop what what you might want, what you might desire, and then go go after that, right? And that's... I think that is so counterintuitive to so many people these days to 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 actually need to depend on on other people in order to develop your own desire, I guess you could say. I suppose I would clarify for our listeners that in the book something I do quite playfully, it's a fairly whimsical project. But following Aristotle's derivation of of core ethical principles in the Nicomachean ethics, I derive a list of psychoanalytic ethical principles, kind of foundational ethical principles of psychoanalysis as I see them, as I understand them, drawing on textual analysis, but also my own just lived experience as a clinician and a patient. And then I do the same for American contemporary American society, focusing specifically on the ethos of neoliberalism, because I think neoliberal capitalist ethos dominates contemporary society or kind of um, is something to focus on within the diversity and complexity of of contemporary American society. And I do that looking at some empirical data, value polls, et cetera, texts on the subject, and also just sort of my lived experience. And it's very playful because psychoanalysis is so hyper-marginalized that it's not as if, you know, analytic thinking and theory is interfacing with contemporary ethical discourse in some kind of fertile dialogic way. But if it were to, to be able to do so, 
I think the ethical visions are very interesting in the context of potential subversion, right? Kind of being able to resonate, but also push back, affirm, but also critique. And there's a lot of similarity. Many of the principles are kind of shared. Many of them are quite different. And then I focus on two that I think are um, good illustrations of, of a potentially optimal marginality or optimally marginal discourse between these two visions. And one thing I focus on is the concept of, of individuality or individualism, I suppose. Uh, and then the other is is freedom. I've been personally fascinated by the idea and lived experience of freedom and agency my whole life. Something I've written about a lot and spend a bit of time in the, in the text here and I think psychoanalytic ideas of freedom are so compelling and could be taken up in, in, in a productive, generative way because freedom is already such a core American value, such a part of our collective spirit and discourse. But it's often, uh, American freedom, it's often a kind of negative vision of freedom, meaning a kind of freedom from obligation, responsibility, Etc., and, and an omnipotent kind of freedom, freedom to, to be able to do what I want. And psychoanalysis, of course, values freedom so much, really champions freedom, free association as a sort of signature method, but freedom is conceived differently, something much more collective and relational, a kind of freedom to, freedom to be able to do things, to, to be able to. Um, participate in collective life, so to speak, or to, to be able to be creative in our own lives, something like this. Uh, and also it's a, it's a very kind of not omnipotent and almost paradoxical version of freedom. Freedom comes from a psychoanalytic perspective, often through surrender, release, letting go, allowing something mysterious to unfold. Yeah, it seems much more receptive in that way than than the American model or like what 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 you I guess the neoliberal model in a in a sense you could say. Yes, I think neoliberalism has really co-opted the concept of freedom, shall we say, much mileage has been gained by appealing to people's ideas of of freedom, right? Free enterprise and mm-hmm. the free market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that that sort of brings me back uh, to the to the uh, issue we were talking about before, uh, the issue of of solidarity within um, psychoanalysis as a field, um, because I think to an extent this this this. <laughs> I guess virtue of of endless competition and of sort of um, bringing bringing out what what the what the best insular group within psychoanalysis might be has really like been very destructive from the inside of of psychoanalysis to the discipline itself, and you put forward this idea of solidarity 
within psychoanalysis. But I'm, I have to say, I'm dubious about about that idea because there's so many factions and they're so they're so vitriolic at times that I mean, solidarity in psychoanalysis, yeah. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Sounds a bit pie in the sky to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's sort of the project that New Books in Psychoanalysis in, is involved in, right? We have so many different uh, factions under, under our umbrella, and I think it works quite well. But in institutes that are so hierarchically organized also, I, yeah, I have no idea how that's supposed to, to play out, to be honest. Yeah, I hear you. It feels a bit utopian to me too, <laughs> bit, bit, bit naive. Um, I will say that something that I have theorized for a long time is that I think solidarity is really important to subversive phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it comes it comes with the with the the issue of marginality, right? Because you rightly raise uh, the point that this sort of marginalization is bound to trigger so many anxieties, right? About belonging, about being part of, of the broader culture. And if we're not, if we don't have solidarity amongst each other, like how, how, how to bear that anxiety? Right. I think that sustaining a subversive, optimally marginal position is difficult. It's constantly sort of threatened by outside forces. We're kind of out to obliterate the subversive faction altogether, so to speak, or to co-opt the the subversive faction, but also threatened from within. Anxiety and infighting and all kinds of things threaten to kind of undermine subversive phenomenon from the inside. Get a lot of this kind of factionalism and divisiveness and just just anxiety right group group life is so hard um i think a robust solidarity becomes really important and i think that that kind of solidarity it it can't be ironclad there has to be room for difference and dynamism it should be firm but flexible and i think a kind of embodied, flexible, but but clear ethical vision can afford a good basis for that kind of solidarity. But I, I think it's hard, right? And I think for psychoanalysis to have a seat at the table and function more subversively, but within contemporary cultural discourse, there would have to be a minimum solidarity. And what, Paul, you were talking, I thought of this line that I may not get right. This isn't my line at someone else's, but um, to Freud's lasting credit, he he never put all of his you know wonderful, complicated thinking about the human condition into a single unified theory. Yes, that's that's the author. I don't think I'm getting the quote quite right, but it's a wonderful quote, and I think he's right. To Freud's lasting credit, you can kind of read anything you want reading Freud. Like pick your Freud, and. To a certain extent, I, I think that's wonderful and dynamic and alive. And how it's the impossible profession, right? How can you, how can you do it? How can you kind of, what what is the frame and what are the principles and what is the foundation that could sustain a, a charitable heterodoxy? Right? What are we all invested in? Mm, 
enough to sustain solidarity. And, and then within that, you can have all kinds of disagreement. But that was part of actually what was kind of fun about distilling this ethical vision was trying to think, what do we all agree about? Right? I think that might actually, yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. It, it might actually be like a really good exercise even for institutes, right, to to actually think collectively about what what are our shared values, like what you know, uh, not not like on in theoretical uh, grounds, because they're so prone to infighting, right, bickering about like psychoanalytic terms and theory, but actually like you know breaking it down to the level of values or virtues, as you call them. And think about you know what what can we what can we agree on like fundamentally, and that could be grounds for solidarity then, right? That's my hope. You know that was what, part of the exercise for me was trying to really think across the parts of me that are Jungian and Freudian and um, Kleinian and contemporary relational psychology, and you know I'm someone who's I'm eclectic, right? I'll kind of read Lacan and fall in love for a bit. And and so it was fun and useful to me to kind of think about what, what would I not part with? What are the, what are the core things like the, the unconscious, what I kind of render as an ethical principle from that is regard from the, for the unknown and unknowable. Um, the importance of attending to subjective experience. That was part of, the, I think, the hopeful book or, or something that I think might be useful for other thinkers to take from the project is, is precisely that kind of ethical vision. Like if you get rid of all of the jargon and endless debate, what is it that psychoanalysis stands for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's why, why also, you know, discussions or dialogue with, with other disciplines becomes so important because... I guess it's just like in in the therapeutic or the analytic diet that you need to engage with someone outside of your own discipline to see yourself clearer or to sort of spell out what what you're about right to to sort of um well to to find to find points of contact also right to figure out what what like what does psychoanalysis share with I don't know like the parts of the contemporary left for example like what what do we what do these different groups stand for and what where's the shared ground for example i think it's very important to 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 do that in discourse and that sort of brings me to i guess already our final question we've run for 50 minutes goodness um i i was wondering if you could say some more about damage about damage magazine the the online magazine that you our founding editor of because it seems to me that part of what you're doing with the magazine relates to what you've spelled out as a vision in the book uh, about you know interdisciplinary dialogue engaging um, culture and political questions with a psychoanalytic edge mm-hmm. yeah sure I'd be I'd be happy to I guess I would say thinking about the kind of Isolation of psychoanalysis, you're, you're right that there's some kind of irony, rich irony 
in this phenomenon of isolation and therefore kind of losing touch that a, a fundamental psychoanalytic insight is that we need other people to see ourselves clearly. I mean, there's a limit to how well we can perceive ourselves, right? That, that truth is a relational kind of social process and, um, yeah, I, I actually feel encouraged on this front. I do think analytic thinkers are much more interested in dialogues with, with outside disciplines and uh, society more broadly. So Damage Magazine came out of this group called the Society for Psychoanalytic Inquiry that I've been part of for some time, but, but wasn't involved in, in starting. It's a diverse group of people, some clinicians and many academics, and we had a reading group. We did some summits. The reading group was just called Analytic Social Psychology. So we would read text together. The group is scattered throughout the country. So we would have these calls on Sunday to discuss analytic texts, but also sociological texts, political texts. Um, and we would read both. And it was just really fun because people were coming from different perspectives, right? There's a good bit of cross-disciplinary dialogue. And at a certain point, I think in 2017, a group of us started talking about forming a magazine, in part, frankly, just to publish our own ideas. But it's taken off. It's it's um, grown some real readership, and we get a good number of submissions these days. And, you know, we look, what would I say succinctly here, um, damage tries to look at the way that late capitalist society damages subjectivity and relationships. So there should be some psychoanalytic component to the pieces, but they're quite diverse. You know, we, we just got a, a submission I edited recently was about cryptocurrency, <laughs> right? But some kind of more depthful perspective where we try to really look, like I said earlier, in in nuanced and interesting ways at the bi-directional and just, just infinitely complex process by which we internalize the social order and our subjective and relational lived experience is affected by material reality, but also the way that our engagement in the world is shaped by our own subjectivity. It's kind of a weaving together of political economy, current Marxist thinking, but also socio-historical context and the formation of subjectivity. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite broad in, in that sense, but we, we try to stay clear to, to some of the original mission and, um, it's been fun for me to have damage part of my life as I do clinical work. I'm a pretty full-time therapist. It's what I do. And I think back to this kind of loss of perspective, I can get so focused on individual patients that I'm not bringing in as much kind of rich thinking from the outside. And it's so stimulating and so useful for my patients, I think, to be thinking about the, the world that we live in in really complicated, diverse ways, it, it helps me function well as a therapist, I, I hope. Well, I guess, and also if I may add vice versa, right? Because I think the 
the experiences that we have in the consulting room are, are too important to just stay there. I think we, I mean, it also really helps possibly broader culture if we find an outlet and and a, and a platform to talk about what we experience in the consulting room and engage cultural and political issues through that lens. So I think, right, both sides... Um, profit from 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 that sort of exchange yeah that's definitely a core belief of ours at damage that that it's so helpful to start with that lived experience that richly textured phenomenon and then link to broader theories even kind of lightly is more useful and interesting than just staying in this realm of theory all the time so it's been a challenge for me actually to try to write about my clinical work for damage. You have to respect confidentiality and develop these sometimes very clunky case studies. But but yeah, it's been a very rewarding experience to do some of that, to try to think about even within my small caseload, you know, let's say I see 30 people a week, but I hear themes. I really hear themes. And when something pops, I want to write about it and think about what it, what is being reflected here. How does this relate to, to other things I've been thinking about? Well, Amber, we have to bring this to a close, unfortunately, already. We're almost at the one hour mark. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I think it's very important what you're, what you're doing with the book. And I, I hope that, that the audience will, We'll pick it up and pick up cues from from our conversation here. Um, just again to repeat myself, the book has been Psychoanalysis as a Subversive Phenomenon, Social Change, Virtue, Ethics, and Analytic Theory. And I've been talking to Amber Trotter. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you, Sebastian. That was that was really quite fun. I appreciate the podcast and I appreciate you having me on. <laughs>